troubled human beings since the very beginning and is still a cause of much consternation and anxiety today. What happens when we die? It's a question we don't ask very often because with increased longevity and outsourced aged care, the dying are often hid from our view. There are people here in the room tonight who I am sure have never been to a funeral. And someone once said, we understand death for the first time when he puts his hand upon one whom we love. That's when we know death. There are some here tonight who do know that painful truth and know it too well. It's when confronted with death that we start asking the question, what happens when we die? Is there anything beyond death? Some say no, death is just the end. But many people confronted by the reality of the death of a loved one can't bear the thought that that would just be the end. So they take emotional refuge in a vague and sort of wishful, oh, they must be in a better place. They're looking, I'm sure they're looking down on us now just saying, don't be sad, Auntie May, just party on. Buddhists and Hindus believe in different forms of reincarnation. Muslims have a specific vision of paradise that those who have done good will enter. What happens when we die? Well, rather than be distracted by all the different theories and proposals, let's start by listening to the only person who has been resurrected from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth. There on your outline, you can see on page 27, from John chapter 5, verses 24 to 29. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He's given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So according to Jesus, a day is coming when He will return, all the dead will rise and appear before Him as judge. You can see what He says there in verse 27, He's been given authority to judge by the Father because Jesus is the Son of Man. We looked at Daniel chapter 7 on Monday night and saw the Son of Man is this human figure who's been given sovereign power and authority and shares God's throne. Jesus is that Son of Man. That's why He is the judge. And how will Jesus judge? Well, look there again, the end of verse 28. All who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. And then Jesus gives the division. Those who've done what is good will rise to live. 
Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So notice two things here. Everyone is raised. It's not just a resurrection of the good. Everyone is raised to some sort of post-death existence. And second, not everyone is raised the same. Some are raised to live and some are raised to be condemned. And as we go on tonight, we're going to explore more of what God tells us about these two realities. But at the moment, just notice there are two resurrection outcomes, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to condemnation. But finally here, what determines the outcome of Jesus' judgment? What determines whether you're raised to life or raised to be condemned? It's there in verse 29. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. This is a fact that's repeated throughout the New Testament. We will be judged for what we've done. The two passages at the bottom of page 27 make the same point. Revelation 20, verse 12, the dead were judged according to what they had done. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 there, Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I could add other passages as well, Romans chapter 2, verses 5 to 10, or Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Jesus will raise all, Jesus will judge all on the basis of what they've done. Now, if you're a Christian person, does that sound a little bit troubling to you? That Jesus will judge each of us according to what we've done. I mean, isn't the defining mark of Christianity that we don't believe in salvation by works? that we're saved by grace, not by works, as indeed we saw in Ephesians 2 last night. But what we're reading here sure sounds like salvation by works, doesn't it? Those who've done good will rise to live, those who've done evil will rise to be condemned. That sounds like whether you're saved or not depends on how you've lived. So what's going on here? Well, the key question to ask yourself is, what is it to do good? And what is it to do evil? Now, now look at, back at John 5 again, with which we started at the top of the page. Look at the first verse there, verse 24. See how Jesus characterizes those who will rise to life. Very truly, I tell you, he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, that is, won't be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. So those who do good are those who hear Jesus' word, not just actually just hear it spoken, but take it in, accept it. They hear His word and believe that He is the one whom God has sent, through whom God was speaking and acting. So it's those who accept Jesus, who treat Him as Lord and Christ, those are the ones who believe in Him, those are the ones who do good. They do good because they've responded positively to what God has done in Jesus. To reject Jesus, on the other hand, is to reject what the one true living God is doing in Him. And that, that is evil. No matter what other good works you might do, to reject Jesus, the one that the one true living God has made Lord and Christ and sent to save you, to reject Him, 
That is a terrible wrong. And no amount of other good deeds can cover up for that. So don't get caught up on thinking, oh, have I done enough good things to please God? You're misunderstanding the true good thing that God wants you to do. In John chapter 6, you might like to look it up later, John 6, 28 and 29, the crowds listening to Jesus ask, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus' answer is, the work, singular, the work of God is this, only one thing, to believe in the one He has sent. The good that God wants you to do is to believe in Jesus, to entrust yourself to Him, to install Him as Lord, to worship Him. That's what it is, fundamentally, to do good. But the heart-wrenching truth repeated throughout the New Testament, including here, is that those who persist in rejecting Jesus face the reality of a resurrection to condemnation. Now, I approach this whole section of our week together at annual conference with sadness, soberly. We don't really want to have to talk about hell. But God is good. And what He has revealed for us is for our good, even when it's hard to hear. So at the top of page 28, you can see we're going to talk about the reality of condemnation. You can see a couple of other places there I've listed where the reality of condemnation is spoken of. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You can notice four things from just this single verse of Scripture. First, it will be suffering. This resurrection to condemnation won't be a party. It won't be celebrating with mates or hanging out with friends. It will be suffering. Second, it is punishment. This resurrection to condemnation is God's just repayment of what we deserve for refusing to let Him be God and to treat Jesus as Lord. Third, it is eternal. It's not a temporary situation, as though you could move from the resurrection of condemnation to the resurrection of life. It's permanent. It's eternal. And fourth, it says there, it's away from the presence of the Lord. You might think, well, that doesn't sound too bad, but that's probably because we haven't stopped to listen to what God tells us in the Bible about the goodness of life in His presence. I think in Reflection Time, some of you read Psalm 16, where David wrote, You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. To be in God's presence is to be filled eternally with joy and pleasure. But the resurrection to condemnation is to be eternally cut off from the presence of the Lord. 
Jesus spoke graphically about the horror of this resurrection to condemnation. And he did so often, urging people to do whatever it took to avoid it. You can see what he said there in one place in Mark chapter 9. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the word hell is a translation of a Greek word, Gehenna. Gehenna was an actual place. It was the rubbish tip outside of Jerusalem. But that spot had an infamous earlier history in Israel's life as a place of child sacrifice. And that led it to become synonymous in the Old Testament with God's judgment on Israel's rebellion. And its use as a rubbish tip explains its association with fire and worms, picked up in the Old Testament in, say, Isaiah 66, which Jesus quotes here in Mark 9. Because in the rubbish tip, that's where the fires burnt. The fires burnt the rubbish and that you could always find worms there. Jesus then used the name of this place, Gehenna, to describe metaphorically the judgment of God in the same way that we often use place names as a shorthand for what a place represents. I'll give you an example. If we're discussing national politics and we say on some matter of national Australian policy, oh, Canberra will make the decision. We're using the place name Canberra to represent the federal government. Well, in the same way, Jesus was not saying you're going to be thrown into the rubbish tip outside the walls in Jerusalem. The name of that rubbish tip, Gehenna, had become, because of what had happened there, had come to represent the larger reality of the coming judgment of God against all human wickedness. Now, halfway down page 28, you can see some of the descriptions we're given of hell, Gehenna, in the New Testament. On the right-hand corner... It's the second death, according to Revelation 20. It's the raging fire that consumes, Hebrews 10. It's wrath, fury, trouble and distress, Romans 2. It's eternal punishment, Matthew 25. It's darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8. It's a place of torment, Luke 16. It's an eternal fire, Matthew 18. It's a lake of fire of burning sulfur, Revelation 20. These are terrifying images. There's all sorts of imagery there, like fire and the worms. But what is it that hell and the judgment of God will really be like? Don Carson notes there on your page, he says, hell is real. The question is how far the biblical descriptions of it are to be taken literally. See, the descriptions of hell in the Bible use all sorts of metaphor and apocalyptic imagery. It doesn't mean that hell is a fiction. On the contrary, 
Jesus would hardly have warned people so urgently if hell wasn't real. It just means we need to be careful in how we treat these metaphoric descriptions of real things. So I think John Calvin has some wise advice on understanding these descriptions there on your page. He says, lay aside foolish speculations by which foolish men weary themselves to no purpose and rather satisfy ourselves with believing that these forms of speech denote in a manner suited to our feeble capacity a dreadful torment which no one can comprehend and which no language can express. So don't get too fixed on this or that particular description, but get the point. The resurrection to condemnation, whatever it will be like in experience, is dreadful beyond words. So what can we say about the reality to which these images and descriptions point? Page 29. We've already noticed some of these points when we looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 a few moments ago. These descriptions point to the real wrath of God against unrepentant sinners. There really is a day when God will pour out His wrath against all sin and against all who refuse to turn to Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Did you ever collect things as a child? I'm old now. I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. When I was a kid, I collected stamps. You've never seen a stamp because you've never seen a letter. I collected stamps. Hand up if you collected Pokemon cards. Yes. Hand up if you collected trophies. Go on, own up to your sporting prowess. Yes, I can see a few of you out there. Hi, Nigel, good to see you. We can store up all sorts of things. I'm not going to ask how many of you store up books because that would just be embarrassing about how many store up books. Or electronic devices. We've got a whole box full of dead electronic devices at home. We store up all sorts of things. But imagine, if you can, I mean, imagine storing up for yourself God's anger against you. There it is day after day, growing higher and higher. That is the awful reality for everyone who refuses to turn to Jesus. They are storing up wrath for themselves. And on one day, on Paul terrifyingly here calls the day of wrath, God's righteous judgment will be revealed and all of that wrath that we've foolishly stored up against ourselves will come crashing down on us. Hell will be the experience of that wrath of God that people have stored up for themselves. 
Second, as we saw before, hell will be real separation, exclusion from the kingdom and the blessings of God. It will be, thirdly, final and eternal. And it will also be the just response of the sovereign God to genuine human agency and responsibility. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this, and I'll update his language in the quote there on the page. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. If you are determined to turn your back on God, then ultimately God says, okay, if that's your choice. And he turns his back on you. It's God's just response to our decision. You might say, oh, but isn't God somehow sovereign over my decisions in some way? What about predestination and election and all that jazz? It's really more up to God, isn't it, rather than me? Well, God is sovereign over our choices, that's true. But in the Bible, God's sovereignty never takes away from the fact that we are rightly held responsible by Him for the genuine decisions that we make. Hell is God's just response to our decision to refuse Him. These four truths about hell are clear. There is some debate over some aspects of what the Bible teaches about hell. For example, one on your page there, is hell eternal conscious torment? Or is it a period of conscious torment ending in annihilation? There's a debate amongst evangelicals about whether hell does consist in an eternity of conscious torment in parallel to the eternal life of the saved. John Stott is one example was not convinced that it was clearly the case. He thought that hell, as described in the Bible, was real, but it might not be eternal conscious torment, but rather a period of conscious torment followed by annihilation where you cease to exist. I can read there from the quote on your page. He says, I do not dogmatize about the position to which I've come. I hold it tentatively. But I do plead for frank dialogue among evangelicals on the basis of Scripture. I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. You can hear John Stott's caution there. He holds his conclusion tentatively, but he argues only, really, that it should be at least acknowledged as fitting with Scripture. But other evangelicals, and I'll be honest, probably the majority of them, disagree with Stott on this case. Having examined the relevant passages, Robert Raymond writes this, I must conclude that the doctrines of the final judgment and of hell for the impenitent and the unbeliever are among the cardinal, that is important and fundamental, doctrines of the Christian faith, and that conscious eternal torment awaits the unrepentant sinner. These things are spoken of clearly and plainly in the New Testament. 
Now, I just want to pause to note that on this question, like several others, evangelicals are divided. And when there is a genuine dispute amongst our evangelical brothers and sisters, that means, well, three things. First, at the end of the day, you have to make up your own mind, based though not on what you'd like to be true, nor on what any particular person you look up to happens to think is true, you need to turn to the Scriptures and decide what you believe that the Scriptures are teaching. So let the question drive you back humbly and prayerfully to what God's Word says. Second, you do need to evaluate how central or core is this particular issue to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because how central or core the issue is will determine how much flexibility you think there is to have a different reading of Scripture on this matter. Third, where there is dispute amongst Bible-believing evangelicals, I think it's wise, as Stott here tries to model, to come to a view but hold it tentatively. Be open to having your view challenged and revised by the Scriptures themselves as we as evangelicals discuss it together. Now, I'd suggest that this same approach is important as we discuss any number of issues over which evangelicals disagree, whether we baptise babies or not, how often to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what sort of teaching ministry ought women be exercising in the body of Christ, what sort of eldership should a church have, on what grounds might believers divorce and remarry. I mean, personally, I have views on each of those matters, on what I think the Bible says, and no doubt you do too. But they are issues over which I'm just acknowledging evangelicals do differ. So I'd suggest that we open our Bibles, we pray for wisdom, and we pour over the Scriptures together. We try to work out together how central and core is this issue to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we make up our own mind on what we believe the Scriptures say. But maybe, maybe because other brothers and sisters in the evangelical family, maybe because they hold different views, maybe that might encourage me to hold my view with just a little bit of extra care and humility because we can't yet quite agree. Well... There, back on your outline. In answer to the question, who ends up in hell, we've already seen the answer. It's all those without Christ. 1 John 5 puts it this way, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has life, but the one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. There's very little ambiguity there. In fact, there's none. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. This has all been rather sobering, hasn't it? But the reality of the resurrection to condemnation is important to talk about. It's critical, in fact, even though it's hard to bear. At the top of page 30, then, let me draw this section together with some conclusions. We're left, I think, with these clear points, these implications. First, remember that judgment will come. 
Justice will be done and all wickedness and evil will be eradicated by our loving good God. Jesus the judge will come. There will be a resurrection to life and to condemnation. If we've been storing up wrath for ourselves by rejecting Jesus and the God who sent him, there will be hell to pay. Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he's given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus identifies Jesus as the judge of all. So we can be sure judgment will come. Justice will be done. Second, therefore, it's right to fear God. Take careful note of Jesus' advice in Luke 12 there on your page. And I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. There is a right fear of God. Hebrews 12, we're told that we should serve God with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. It's foolish in the extreme to presume upon God. So we have a right, a, a respectful, reverent fear of the one who can send people into hell. But notice, Jesus goes straight on to qualify that fear from verse 6. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? That is, sparrows are cheap. Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. That's how well God knows and cares about you. And so Jesus concludes, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Have a right fear of God a respectful fear that acknowledges he can throw people in, into hell, but don't be afraid. Because if you've turned to his son Jesus in repentance and faith, then you know you are precious in his sight. You've been thoroughly saved by Jesus' death, who went to hell for you, by saved by his death and his resurrection. So you don't need to be trembling with fear. Have a reverent right fear, but don't be afraid. My guess is someone's going to ask a question about that at question time tomorrow night, but that's okay. Third, avoid hell at all costs. Hell is real, and so Jesus was at pains to communicate how much you should avoid it. Matthew 5 this time. If your right eye, he says, causes you to sin... Gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Don't be fooled, Jesus is saying. An unrepentant life, it is a highway to hell. 
and you should do whatever it takes to get off that highway. Now, actually gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand, we know that's not going to eradicate sin in your life, isn't it? Because sin comes from the heart and the mind. It doesn't have its origin in your eye or your hand. But you get Jesus' point. Sin is that serious. Hell is that real. You should do whatever it takes to avoid it. And the answer to getting off that highway, in fact, the only answer, is turn to Jesus. Jesus is the one, through his death and resurrection, who can lift you off that highway if only we would come to him in faith and repentance. And that's why the fourth implication of the resurrection of condemnation is that we proclaim the only Saviour. The reality of the coming judgment and the thought of resurrection to condemnation, it's just a thought, it's gut-wrenching. All of those people who have died without Christ, all of our family and our friends and our colleagues at work, our neighbours, who are storing up wrath for themselves by refusing to trust Jesus. The hundreds of thousands of people across Sydney who know Jesus' name, but not his power to save. Or the millions upon millions around the world who've never even heard his name. Luke tells us in Luke 19 that when Jesus stood there looking at the city of Jerusalem, knowing the judgment that the inhabitants would face because they were going to reject him, he wept. What else can you do when you really contemplate the reality of God's just condemnation? He wept. And we think about what this means for all of those people. We can weep too. We can weep too. And like Jesus, we can pray. Pray for more workers to be sent out with God's message of salvation about Jesus into the harvest field. Pray for God to open up blind eyes and soften hard hearts. Pray for God to pour out His Spirit to bring revival and life in unprecedented numbers so that they might live to the praise of His glory. And like Jesus, we can commit ourselves to proclamation, to proclaiming Him, our only Saviour. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So we proclaim Jesus, whether the time is favourable or unfavourable, whether it's a popular message in your workplace or not, how else are people going to know and turn to Him 
unless we proclaim him. And maybe like me, as I think about that, and I think about the suburb in which I live, and I think about the people I know, and I think about their rejection of Jesus, and I think about what that means, and the need to proclaim Jesus, that drives me back to prayer again, doesn't it? Prayer that we might be filled with the boldness that comes from the Spirit, so that we can proclaim Jesus, the only Saviour, to our friends and our family who are tragically storing up wrath for themselves. So I think it's appropriate that we pray right now. Don't you agree? I'm going to leave a moment, a time of personal prayer. We're not not done yet. But I feel like we need to pray. So I'm going to leave about a minute, minute and a half for for you to pray for those known to you who need Jesus. I want you to name them before the Lord and pray that he might mercifully pour out his spirit upon them, that they would know Jesus, and that you would be bold like, like I need to be bold. And after a minute or so, uh, Issa, one of our student vice presidents, is going to come and lead us in prayer. When she does come up to pray, I'm going to get us all to stand up and she will lead us in prayer. Okay? So let's, let's go to prayer. Please stand as I lead us in prayer. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Our Lord and Father, We thank you that you reveal your message of truth and love to us through Jesus and through your word. We thank you that you are a merciful God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of his truth. We thank you that you long to be gracious to your people and that you rise up to show compassion for you are a God of justice. And yet we know, Lord, that this justice also involves real wrath and condemnation and that it is a confronting, distressing, and saddening thing to consider. We think of the people in our lives who we love and care for dearly, family and friends who do not yet know you as their loving Lord and Saviour. You know their names and you know their hearts. Lord, our hearts are broken for them, and we cry out to you with longing and praying that they might come to know you and your saving love and grace. Give us great urgency in our hearts, Lord, as we continue to love and serve these people, reflecting your selflessness and grace in our actions and sharing your gospel truth with our words. Our prayer is that many would turn away from many would turn from their ways to you and live, for we know you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We pray for the students and staff at the University of Sydney who do not know, do not yet know you as their Lord, who have not yet heard your gospel. Lord, may we be courageous, lights shining for you on campus, knowing your sadness and longing for those who have turned away from you. In all that we say and do, may may you be working in us to glorify you, honour your name, and help share your saving, life-bringing message to the campus. As we make decisions about how to spend our weeks at university, and as, as we have the opportunity to share the gospel with our peers at public meetings, give us wisdom and perspective, using each hour to serve and proclaim your name. We pray for those around the world who have not heard your word. 
Lord, we know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And we thank you for the opportunity we've had to spend time with and learn from some of your workers who are bringing your gospel to your people outside Sydney. Through your power, may you raise up more workers, workers, even among us here tonight, equipped with your strength and your truth to love and serve the lost outside our communities. May we be constantly prayerful about those who do not know you and those who are serving you in challenging situations. May we desire that many would come to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, for this is pleasing in your sight. May we love those around us immensely as you first showed love and mercy to us when we were lost and hopeless, desiring that they would not be condemned, but that, might, that they might fear you rightfully and understand the truth of your message. We pray this in the name of your Son and for his glory. Amen. Please sit down. Well, we've thought from the scriptures about the resurrection to condemnation, but Jesus there in John 5 said that there would also be a resurrection to life. It's time to think about that resurrection to life. I'm halfway down page 30. I don't know where you are, but maybe we could join up there. The consistent message of the New Testament is that this present life now is not it. This is not all there is. The future for every follower of Jesus is bodily resurrection through the indwelling spirit when Jesus comes. This is the consistent hope, the sure future promised in the New Testament. And I've put a few sample passages there on your page from 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Or Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to e uh, him even to subject all things to Himself. So our lowly bodies are going to be transformed to be like Jesus' glorious resurrection body. That's what we're waiting for. That's our hope, our promised future. And God will do it, Romans 8.11 tells us, through His Spirit that is already living within us. Now, talk of our future resurrection body raises all sorts of questions, some very important, some very distracting. What age will we be? Will we need sleep? Will we be able to walk through walls? I am asked that all the time. Will we immediately know everything? Will we learn things in the new creation? Will we have jobs? And the most important question of all, will there be Wi-Fi? Okay, I think probably all of those questions are in the distracting category. Some of our questions have answers in the Christian Scriptures. Most of our distracting questions don't which can then just lead to wild speculation, which can be fun, but it really is just speculation. It's hardly worth bothering over. What's important is to grab hold of what God has revealed about our future resurrection, because there are many sure promises that He's given us, and He's given us to them, so you can hold on to them with confidence, and they make a difference. So to help us, we're going to work through 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 57. It's one of the great New Testament passages on our future resurrection. I'm stopping short of verse 57, because 
Verse 58 is tomorrow night, so that's why I'm stopping there. I'm now on page 31. The nature of the resurrection body. Paul starts with what seems to be a good question. Verse 35 there. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? That seems reasonable enough, doesn't it? But look at Paul's reply. You foolish person. Why so harsh, Paul? I mean, well, I think the reason Paul responds so forcefully is because he's writing to Corinthians who have already, in this chapter, shown themselves to be sceptical about a future bodily resurrection. So the questions are being asked with that sarcastic, scornful scepticism. How is it possible for the dead to be raised? As if, what sort of body could they possibly be raised with that would be suitable for life? To that sort of scepticism, Paul says, you fool. And then he continues. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So you shouldn't think that the resurrection body is currently exactly like this current body. The seed you plant is not the same as the plant that grows. There's a serious discontinuity. They have different types of body. Yet there is a continuity between them because it's the seed that dies that then springs back to life in a new body. So we ought not to expect that our new resurrection bodies will be the same as the present body, but there will be a continuity between them. It'll be my old body that is transformed into the new body, just like it was for the Lord Jesus. That then launches Paul into a broader principle from verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Paul then applies that principle of different types of bodies to our resurrection. And he lists out some of the differences between the body now and the body that will be. He says, 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonour, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So what then are the differences between our present body and the future resurrection body? Paul lists 
a few of the differences there, verses 42, 43, which we'll come back to. But the one that causes the most difficulty in our understanding is probably the one he says there in verse 44. It's sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. Haven't we been saying all this week that the future resurrection is bodily? That Jesus himself has a physical body, flesh and bones, as he himself said to the apostles. What then is this distinction that Paul makes between a natural body and a spiritual body? I mean, the whole idea of a spiritual body sounds like it isn't physical. Sounds more like some sort of ghost or something, a spiritual body. But what I've done in your outline in the diagram under the passage is include the words that Paul actually used when he wrote this chapter in Greek. Literally, he says, it was sown a psuchikon body and raised a pneumaticon body. What do these particular words he uses mean? Well, you can get a bit of an idea, actually, if you, you can jot down this reference and look it up later. If you look earlier in the letter, Paul has used the same two words in a different part of the letter, and it helps us understand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, Paul said this. He said, the natural person, the pseudikos, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them, and they are not able to understand them, because they are spiritually, pneumatically discerned. The spiritual person, pneumaticos, judges all things, but are themselves to be judged by no one. Paul here is talking about two different groups of people in the present age. They both have physical bodies. Being pneumaticos, spiritual, does not mean you have no physical body. The difference between pseudikos and pneumaticos is not physicality. The words are not about composition, what your body is made of. The words are about animation, what gives life to and energizes a person, what drives a person at the core of their being. An example I heard when I was a student in the EU, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, was of this very point, is that it's like the idea of a steam train. A steam train is not made of steam, is it? Oh, no, no, it's not. A steam train is powered by steam. It's animated, driven by steam. And so a spiritual body is not a body composed of the spirit, it's a body powered, energized, animated at the core of your being by the Spirit of God. So Paul's point, back to 1 Corinthians 15, is not that we're going to go from a physical body to a non-physical body. Now the point is we're going to go from this physical body now, a pseudicon body energized by normal, natural means, to a Holy Spirit animated body, a body energized and animated by the Spirit. Now you say, well, what is that like? What's that going to look like? I don't know. But I know it's true of the risen Jesus now, and it'll be true of us when He raises us. Now, we already have the Spirit now, of course, as Christians, as a first taste of that future experience, and we will continue to have the Spirit, but the Spirit will become the very driving force of our being. So you can see there on your page a picture of the first Adam in skeletal form. That's the Adam who became, in verse 45, a living being, a 
Pesukin, and a picture of the last Adam, Jesus, the one already raised in a spiritual body. And so if you want to, as I go through it now, you've got a pen, you can fill in some of the characteristics of these two Adams from the passage, looking particularly at verses 42 to 43. The first Adam, we read there, is perishable. You can write that next to the first Adam, perishable. But the second Adam is imperishable. So you can write that next to the Jesus. Jesus is, that is, no more susceptible to decay and disease. The first Adam, we read, dies in dishonor. That is, his death was a punishment and a reminder of his sin. That's why he died in dishonor. Death was a punishment for his sin. But Jesus was raised in glory with no more dishonor or shame. The first Adam died in weakness. There was nothing Adam could do about his death. But Jesus was raised in a mighty display of God's power. And the first Adam, as we've seen, died as a naturally energized body, but Jesus was raised as a body animated and powered by the Spirit. And you can keep going. If you go down to verse 47 there, you can see the first Adam came from the dust of the earth, but the resurrected Jesus has his origin in heaven. And if you jump ahead to verse 53, you can add one more. The first Adam was mortal, but the resurrected Jesus was immortal. He would never die again. These are huge differences, right? Categorically different. But the exciting thing is the continuity, the line that joins the two is the most exciting. Well, I don't know if the most exciting, but it's there on the diagram. It's exciting because it means that we start with the first Adam, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, says Paul, so we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. The first Adam is the description of your present life now, yes, but the second Adam is who you will be. That's an amazing truth. Because of our union with Jesus, we will be raised imperishable. Can you imagine life with no more disease, no more decay? I know that most of you are still young and in the prime of youthful, beautiful adulthood, right? But there's a number of us here, some of the supporters, a number of the senior staff, who've started to feel the reality of our bodies decaying. Imagine, though, life with no more fading eyesight, no more thinning hair, no more groaning muscles, no more restricted movement. Imagine no more cancer. Imagine no more mental illness. Imagine no more broken bones. Imagine no more period pain. Yeah. (laughs) 
we, we will be raised imperishable. We'll be raised in glory. No more sin. How good will that be? No more will I give in to those thoughts and those temptations. No more will I just find myself trapped in those webs of just self-made deceit. No, no more sin. We'll be raised in power as He awesomely transforms us from our current weakness. We'll be raised immortal. No more death. That is our hope. Not our wishful thinking. That is our sure, certain future. That we will be raised with a body like Jesus. Isn't it brilliant? Speed on that day, Lord Jesus. And it doesn't matter whether you've died or whether you're still alive when Jesus returns. This amazing transformation is what awaits every believer in Jesus. On the next page, page 32, down to the second paragraph, verse 51, Behold, he says, I tell you a mystery. We, will, we shall not all sleep, that is, we won't all die, because some will be alive when Jesus returns, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. There is no doubt that God is going to transform every single one of His people into the likeness of His Son from heaven. And then Jesus' victory will be complete. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and he quotes here Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Your, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This was never something that we could have done for ourselves. If it's going to be a battle between you and death, I know who will win. We are utterly defenseless in the face of death. But God has defeated death in Jesus Christ and in His mercy and love, He's given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Christ, you win. You win over the tsunami of death. All thanks to God's power and grace. Well, what response to these truths? I'm going to leave you to read those passages from Philippians 3 and 1 Thessalonians 4. The New Testament encourages us in light of these things to be full of eager expectation, looking forward to our future transformation. And it tells us, don't worry. Don't worry about Christians who've died because we'll all be reunited with them in resurrection when Jesus comes. So, conclusion. Once again, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. We've looked at our judgment beyond death before Jesus, the risen judge, the glorious hope 
of our future bodily resurrection, for which we're filled with eager expectation and the sobering reality of the resurrection to condemnation, in response to which we weep and we pray and we proclaim. Now John 3.36 sums up these resurrection alternatives. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It all comes down, as it always does, to our response to Jesus. Do we believe in Him? Have you entrusted yourself to Him as Lord? Or are you rejecting Him? storing up wrath against yourself. I'm going to finish by reading out the words of this old Christian song, which capture lots of the things we've talked about tonight. Then I'm going to lead us in prayer and we'll sing. Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. The judge of mankind doth appear on clouds of glory seated. The trumpet sounds, the graves restore, the dead which they contained before. Prepare, my soul, to meet him. The dead in Christ shall first arise at that last trumpet sounding, caught up to meet him in the skies with joy their Lord surrounding. No gloomy fears their souls dismay. His presence sheds eternal day on those prepared to meet him. The ungodly, filled with guilty fears, behold his wrath prevailing. For they shall rise and find their tears and sighs are unavailing. The day of grace is past and gone. Trembling they stand before his throne, all unprepared to meet him. Great judge, to thee our prayers we pour, in deep abasement bending. O shield us through that last dread hour, thy wondrous love extending. May we in this our trial day, with faithful hearts, thy word obey, and thus prepare to meet thee. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for raising Jesus to life as Saviour, Lord and Judge. Have mercy, please, on our friends and family who've rejected him. Please turn them, change them, so that they might have life, resurrection life with us in him. We long for that day when Jesus comes and transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, free of sin, suffering, pain and death. Thank you, Father, for this sure hope which we have in the risen Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.